What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Hello, my name is Rob Oshesky. I am the podcast manager here at Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Did you hear? We are hosting a free theological conference called the Image of God Conference on November 11th and 12th, 2022. Guest speakers include Jim Widener from Harvest USA, Dr. Barry York, Dr. C.J. Williams, Dr. Richard Gamble, and Dr. Jeff Stavison from the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you are interested, please go to gospelfellowshippca.org for more information and to register. Hope to see you there on November 11th and 12th. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 1 this morning. We began this new series last week, and we continue on today with verses 4 through 8. So let's go ahead and stand up together for the reading of God's holy word. We know here at Gospel Fellowship that his word is inspired and inerrant, the infallible word of the true and living God. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8 is our text this morning. Listen now to the word of our King, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May God add His blessing to the reading of His holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're all familiar in our culture with the, uh, with the uh, starting lineup announcement and introduction at sporting events. We've seen this many times. We even love this moment. You go to a local high school football game, for instance, and the high school team and the band, they come out onto the field. Maybe they burst through a, 
a homemade hand-painted banner that the cheerleading team has made for us. And we love this moment because that's our squad. That's our team. That's who we're cheering for. And we do this as well in professional sports. If you go to a basketball playoff game in the downtown arena, let's say they may have the same kind of concept, only maybe some flames and maybe some smoke and some fancy lights. If you like the uh, combat sports like boxing or the UFC, Bruce Buffer, the announcer, comes out and he introduces the fighter in the red corner and he introduces the other in the blue corner. And all of this is somewhat of a cultural liturgy that we know as American people today. And we like this moment because not only does it introduce us and remind us of who the main players are on the courts or the field or in the ring, but it also induces a desire in the congregation or the, the spectators, let's say, arena even perhaps, to decide, who am I cheering for in this match? Which team am I on? Whose jersey will I wear? Am I going to be, as I watch what unfolds before my eyes, merely some sort of objective spectator, or am I actually going to be part of the action itself in as many ways as I am able to be part of the action? And so these introductions, they, they induce a desire within us as those who watch to determine whether or not we're going to be neutral or whether or not we're going to be partisan in what takes place before us. And so John, in the beginning of the apocalypse here, um, if I can use this as kind of an illustration, John is going to give us now, in this text that we've just read, the main participants in the war or the drama that's going to unfold over the next 20-some chapters. And so this ends up being a very important paragraph in the beginning stages of the book of Revelation. Now, if you missed it last week, we did introduce this book. This is the second week of our study here in the book of Revelation. I want to recall just a few things by way of review that are going to help us this morning. First of all, remember that this book is technically called an apocalypse. The word revelation means exactly the same thing. Both revelation and apocalypse, they have uh, in the word itself this connotation of something being unveiled or being disclosed or being revealed to the observer that wasn't necessarily obvious before. And so in a wedding, I went to a wedding last night. At a wedding, I mentioned this last week, there's a moment where the bride takes off the veil in front of her face. And that's an important moment because now the groom sees the bride for all of her beautiful glory. It's an important moment in the wedding service. And so too, if you ever go to a stage play or a drama or a theater performance, it's the same thing. At the beginning of the show, the, the, uh, the curtains roll back. And the main participants, the actors, let's say, are revealed and the characters are introduced. So as an apocalypse, the book of Revelation functions, therefore, in the Holy Scriptures to somewhat pull back the curtains of what is not obvious to us so that we can more fully see what is really and truly happening in the spiritual realms. The word apocalypse can sometimes mean a dream or a vision uh, but it can sometimes mean a, a dawning realization as you understand doctrine more fully. And the word apocalypse also takes on sort of a technical term, meaning the return of Jesus Christ himself. All of this I laid out in more detail last week. You might want to check out that sermon online if you missed it. I also showed you a couple of different ways to interpret the book of Revelation. We mentioned the preterist perspective, the futurist perspective, the historicist perspective. And I let you know last week that I am an idealist in, my, in terms of my interpretation of Revelation which essentially means that we combine the strengths of the other views 
and we try to take every vision for what it is, sort of like if we were going to an art gallery, we're going to stand before every single painting and take in what that painting conveys to us, without necessarily the pressures of trying to put together some sort of a chronological sequence in which we're forcing details of the text to make sense in terms of our, let's say, chronological or historical worldview. Again, I explained all that last week. I don't want to do a whole lot more with that this morning, other than to add this to you. Um, in the genre of apocalyptic materials, um, this is a genre that sometimes has a number of sub-genres within it. And we're actually going to see that today, because within the category of apocalyptic literature, these other lesser types of literature do sometimes present themselves. For instance, today in our text, we see the subgenre of the epistolary form, which is to say a letter from one person to another. Now, we have all sorts of letters in the New Testament, so we're familiar, aren't we, with the idea of an epistle. But I do want you to notice that Revelation itself takes on the form of an epistle. There's a writer, there's an author, and that is John the, the Apostle. And he is writing, as he mentions here, to seven churches in verse 4. This is the greeting of the epistolary form. And John is going to have several things to say to each one of these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Now, of all the things in the book of Revelation that we can take as symbolic, and there are many such things, these seven churches are actually literally real historical congregations that existed in John's day, cities that still exist today although the churches perhaps have, uh, have extinguished their lights. Um, but nevertheless, this evidence is here, the epistolary form. And we're going to see other subgenres too. We're going to see dreams. We're going to see visions. We're going to see liturgy, even prayers, even songs throughout the book of Revelation. I just want to call this to your attention this morning because what we have here is technically then the greeting of this epistle from John to the seven churches. Now, my main goal this morning is to simply walk through this text with you, and we're going to do so in a rather verse-by-verse -verse format today. I don't necessarily have three points for you or something like that, but I do want to simply walk through each one of these verses and make some comments along the way. So I want to challenge you to have your Bible out with you as we go through these, uh, these verses together. I'm also going to mention some things that we're not going to be able to cover fully this morning, and I might challenge you to study some passages more fully later on today for your personal devotions or your family worship time. I hope you do that on the Lord's Day. That's important for all of us. But let's go ahead and start in verse 4 here, and I want you to notice immediately that as John is he's calling out the starting lineup, if we want to think of that, he's introducing to us the main participants in the war drama that we're going to see throughout the rest of this book. And I want you to notice, look at this, that verse 4 evidences a very clear Trinitarian structure. Do you see that? Look down at your Bible. Look at the Trinitarian structure to this greeting here in verse 4. And this is going to be important because there's going to be an anti-Trinity that's going to come up later in the book. So look at verse 4. Let's read it and then we'll talk about it. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now that time, did you see the Trinitarian form there? Did you see that a little bit clearer? I hope so. 
Because Trinitarian theology is absolutely crucial to the book of Revelation, as it is absolutely crucial to the whole of the New Testament and even the Old Testament as well. What do I mean by Trinitarian theology? Well, God, the only God who exists, there is only one God, right? This one and true living God eternally exists as three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And sometimes throughout the Scriptures, when we read through, especially in the New Testament, what we'll very often find is that all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are mentioned in brief succession, even within one particular verse. We see this all the time in the book of Acts, for instance, which John did not write. Luke wrote that one. But here in verse 4, this opening introduction to the main characters, John does this very intentionally. This is not an accident that all three persons of the Trinity would be mentioned in succession at the very beginning of this book. We have here a reference to the Father, the one who was and is and is to come, to the Spirit, the seven spirits who are before his throne. I'll have something to say about that in just a moment. And then, of course, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And this is critical for us because as we work through the later sections of this book, what you're going to notice, and I hope this becomes clear to you, is that there is not only a true trinity, but there is an anti-trinity at work. There is a counter-trinity at work. And so just as in a sporting event, though the home team is introduced, yet the visiting team will also be introduced to great boos and jeers from the home team. And we're going to see that in the anti-trinity or the counterfeit trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, who we are rightly to loathe when we see them in the text. So we're not objective observers here. Or, or, no, we're not. We are called to side then with who John sides with the Holy Trinity of God. Now let's look at each one of these references to the three persons of the Trinity and say something about each one. First, John introduces the Father, the person of the Father, with this language here. Him who is and who was and who is to come. This is his description of God, our Heavenly Father. It's an interesting description because it has to do with time, doesn't it? The one who is, present tense, and who was, past tense, and who is to come. We can't say that about anybody else. Um, you and I, we are now and we will be one day, but we cannot say that we eternally existed. Could we? No. Uh, this is a reference to God himself, his own lordship, his own nature. And this is going to be something that John is going to say again in verse 8. Notice again, he says it again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And let's flip forward even to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. He's going to say the same thing again in this beautiful song that the creatures are going to sing, these strange creatures in chapter 4, when they call out in Revelation 4, 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and, to, is, to, and is to come, which itself is a reference to that great Isaiahic scene in Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 3. But notice here, this is kind of interesting, isn't it, that John has somewhat flipped the order of those time markers because in 4.8 he says, who was past and who is present and who is to come, clearly the future. But in our text here in Revelation 1, what did he do? He says, he who is present 
and who was past and who is to come future. Notice John highlights what? The present by pulling it out to the first. This is the God who is. Why did he do that? Probably because John is hearkening back to the divine name itself from Exodus chapter 3. Remember, if we go back to the book of Exodus, and we don't have time to do a full exposition of Exodus chapter 3, but in Exodus chapter 3, we have this seminally important text in the redemptive scriptures, the whole of scriptures, where God reveals his divine name to Moses. Now, there are many names that God takes to himself, right? But in Exodus chapter 3, at the burning bush scene, God calls himself by what becomes his covenantal divine name, the name of Yahweh, or sometimes in the old versions like the King James, or sometimes we sing it in the Psalter, it's called Jehovah, but it's the same idea here that God reveals himself with the name I am. And so when John takes that present tense and pulls it out to the front, we're supposed to connect that with the fact that God's divine name is I am. He is the God who is. He is the God who exists in contradistinction to all of the false gods who have no existence and no power. And so when John reminds us here that this is the God who is, He's hoping that we make this connection with the divine name of Yahweh or Jehovah God himself. Now, sometimes when the Jewish people would read the scriptures or they would talk about God, they would often balk at actually saying the name Yahweh or Jehovah out loud because that name was considered to be so holy that it ought not to be said unless somebody accidentally speak that name in vain. And so even sometimes when they would read the scriptures, they would come to the Tetragrammaton, the four letters a Y-H-W-H, or the name Yahweh, they would simply pronounce it as Adonai. And so it's possible here that John is respectfully declining to use the name Jehovah or Yahweh and instead calling our attention here to the divine name with this, this creative and somewhat beautiful reference to God's eternal existence, the one who is and who was and who is and is to come. And so also, as John makes us think about the fact that God never changes at all, because the same God who existed in the days of Moses is the same God who exists today and is the same God who will judge us at the end of the world, uh, John is also calling to our minds the doctrine of God's immutability, which is to say, he doesn't change. And this is good news, because everything else seems to change all the time. Have you noticed that you change? You looked in the mirror recently? <laughs> and a few more wrinkles than you did a few years ago? A few more gray hairs? A few less hairs, perhaps? We change. Almost everything in this world experiences change. Um, our nation is certainly changing right now. Our culture is changing so fast, you can't even keep track of how quickly it's changing if you look at the news every day, right? And to some extent, the amount of cultural change that we're experiencing, even right now, should rightly terrify us as we're wondering our, to ourselves, is this society, this civilization, even going to be able to hold together for much longer? Some of us are wondering that as we look at all the ways of our culture is disintegrating before our very eyes. And you ought to be wondering that yourself. You ought to be looking at some of the changes that are happening today and saying to yourself, my goodness, are we going to be secure into the future? Who knows, right? Here's one thing we do know. God doesn't change. So his word 
doesn't change. His will doesn't change. His law does not change. His gospel does not change. And so we're reminded of this right at the very beginning of the book of Revelation because everything else is subject to change. Every time a beast rises out of the sea, you're going to wonder if the world is breaking into chaos. Every time a new beast rises up, every time a new threat to society rears its ugly head filled with horns, right? You're going to wonder, is everything falling apart? Is it all just disintegrating into chaos? And John reminds us here with the immutability of our Heavenly Father that there is at least one thing that is constant that we can constantly, faithfully rely and depend on, and that is the immutable attributes of our holy righteous and powerful father and so he introduces the father first as he rightly should and then secondly john goes on then to introduce the holy spirit now this is a very interesting line here did this bequizzle you a little bit as i read it out loud were you kind of wondering about this this is interesting because what does he say about the holy spirit Well, interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit is usually thought of as the third person of the Trinity. We typically say him Father, Son, second, and then the Holy Spirit. Again, John uh, tinkers with the order slightly here by introducing the Holy Spirit secondly instead of thirdly. I don't think that means anything really other than that God is who he is, right? But here's this reference to the Spirit. Now, he calls him here in verse 4, the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now, I don't want you to think, please, 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 do not think that there are seven Holy Spirits, okay? There's not nine members of the Trinity. I don't want anybody making that mistake this morning. No, this is our first encounter with John's constant and repetitive use of numerology, which is the assigning of particular theological values to numbers. And so John, as you probably already know, absolutely loves and adores the number seven. We're going to see the seven number come up over and over and over throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, you don't just have it once here in verse four, you actually have it twice because you have the seven churches in verse four and then the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now let's just pause then and introduce the number seven a little bit. We're going to have to get used to this. This is a a classic Johannine form here in Revelation. We're going to see it by my count, just rough count, about 60 times, 59 or so times, we're going to see the number seven come up. Don't quote me on that. That's just a guess. It's an approximate, real quick word search count on my part. But we're going to see seven churches, seven lampstands, Seven stars, torches, angels, trumpets, seals, eyes, thunders, heads, diadems, plagues, bulls, mountains, kings, and on and on it's going to go. Seven, 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 seven. So we got to ask right here. First time we saw it, what's this mean? What's this about? Well, seven in biblical numerology is the number of perfection or completion or fullness or maturity, and we draw that from the creation itself. John is usually referring then to the very order of creation in which God made the heavens and the earth. As you know very well, he spoke the world and all that is in it into existence in six days, and he rested on the seventh day, right? And so when John speaks of the number seven, 
he's talking about the fact that even the creation itself is kind of built on this natural rhythm of sevens. We have every week a Sabbath day. The word Sabbath literally means the seventh day. And so throughout the history of redemption, the number seven comes up again and again. It's as though God builds this sort of perfection into the gears of how history unfolds. If you want to think of the world and history as unfolding kind of like gears in a machine, they work together rotating perfectly around the number seven based on the creation of the world. And so usually what happens here in the book of Revelation is when John uses the number seven, he means that this object is present in its fullness or in its perfection or in its ultimate reality. And so when we talk about the seventh trumpet, for instance, that's going to mean judgment has come in its fullest and final form. Very often, sevens are good. Sometimes, though, beware of this, sevens are bad or evil because evil can manifest itself in fullness, in plentitude too. And so when we see the seven heads of the beast in Revelation 13.1, please don't think that's good. It just means that it's coming at you fully and powerfully. All right. So here John uses the number seven to describe the Spirit, and this is important to us because he's already mentioned seven churches, and so we have the seven spirits who are before the throne of the Father who are present to the seven churches. Now again, if you were to look at the seven churches on the map, they all show up in what is called Asia Minor or Turkey. I don't know if you're in your Bible, you have maps in the back, and I've got some nice maps in the back of my Bible. These are all churches that literally existed surrounding like Ephesus and Colossae. But these are not the only seven churches that existed in the first century. Please know that. Okay? There's a lot of churches that existed in, in this day that are not mentioned in this seven. For instance, uh, Corinth and Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi and Antioch. Those churches aren't mentioned here. And so when, when John speaks of the seven churches, I don't want you to think that he's only talking to these seven churches. Again, what's the idea with the number seven? The idea is that John is writing to the fullness of the church. Okay, This applies equally to Corinth and Valencia as it does to Smyrna. And so the fact that John introduces the Holy Spirit as the sevenfold Spirit of God, what that means to us is that the Spirit will manifest Himself fully in all of His churches wherever they may be. Okay, His Spirit will be present in His true churches. Now later when we get to chapter 2 verse 9, we're going to find out that there are synagogues of Satan. There are false churches. Depends on what they believe and how they practice. Right? Yes? Nods, please? There are false churches, but there are true churches. And the Spirit of God is present then in all of His true churches. The sevenfold Spirit of God is present in His seven churches. You see the idea here? Does everybody get that? And this is actually very practical for us to think about because what that means for us, Gospel Fellowship, is that we don't ever necessarily need to be jealous of what's happening in other true churches. And this happens to us sometimes as we think to ourselves, don't we? Oh, I wish that God would move here as he is obviously moving there. As though they had his spirit and we did not. If you've ever been to St. Andrew's Church where R.C. Sproul was before he passed away a few years ago. Marvelous church, right? Beautiful. 
powerful, a leader church amongst Reformed churches, clearly a church that's a beacon of light, not only regionally, but globally. And you go there, and the architecture is amazing, and Sproul's the pastor, and they're always having fantastic other pastors that come and preach and teach, and they've got their campus, and they've got their college, and they're all their ministries. And you walk into St. Andrews, and you look up at this beautiful place, and you say to yourself, it's almost like you can't stop yourself from saying, man, I wish that the Holy Spirit were in our church as he is obviously working in St. Andrews. And then you have to catch yourself and say, but wait, he is. He is present in all of His true churches in His fullness. He hides nothing from you. We never need to be jealous of another church, ever. We have the same Spirit of God, okay? And so this is true. This is what brings unity to churches. It doesn't matter necessarily then whether we're a country church or a city church, whether we're a black church or a white church, whether we're a big church or a small church, relatively speaking, whether the church is meeting its budget or not whether we're meeting in a new building or a building that's in disrepair, all of those things are irrelevant. If the Spirit of God is in the church, it is a church indeed. And by the way, that same thing uh, that builds us up ought to also keep us humble. Lest we ever think that we're the only church that the Spirit of God is moving in. That we're the only denomination that the Spirit of God is moving in. That's not true either. Because the sevenfold Spirit of God is present to and dwells among the seven churches in His fullness. There need be no jealousy amongst churches. We are all on the same team as long as we are in Christ. Amen? It's pretty important stuff. All right, so the Father is introduced as the one who is and was and is to come. The Spirit of God is introduced. Now, obviously, the, uh, the next person here is not difficult to figure out because he says it in so many words in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Not a lot of mystery to decode here in verse 5. However, I do want to point out to you that John's use of terminology here, faithful witness, firstborn and ruler of the kings of the earth. Even that has an Old Testament reference. Those three terms are all drawn from Psalm 89. Okay? Again, John's constantly using the Old Testament. I'm going to assign you this as your, uh, your homework for today. I want you to go back and read Psalm 89. We do not have time to do an exposition of it. But Psalm 89 is an important one, and I, I want to just point out one thing about it before you study it later on today. Is that Psalm 89 was not accidentally chosen by John. It maps perfectly on the book of Revelation. It really does. John is drawing our attention to Psalm 89 by using these three terms from the psalm. Here's why. Because Psalm 89, first of all, it's a bit of a longer psalm. You'll notice that it's got 50-some verses to it. It's a bit of a, a, bit of a chunk here. But uh, Psalm 89 has two major parts, and it splits evenly the first 37 verses and then the rest of the psalm. The first part, gloriously, joyfully triumphant, hopeful, positive, trustworthy. It's all praises and extolling the character of God. And then it takes a turn, a somewhat dark turn in verse 38, and the psalmist laments then the miserable state and condition of the tribulation that the saints must necessarily go through in this world. Those two truths. God is great, and the world is a mess. <laughs> and that's Revelation in a nutshell, right? 
That's the, that's the book of Revelation in a nutshell. So Psalm 89 maps perfectly on top of the major theological themes of Revelation. That's why John chooses these three terms to describe Jesus Christ. Let me dwell on the word martyr for a moment. The word faithful witness in your English translation. Look, Go, go back to Revelation 1 verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Right there, pause. The Greek language is the marturos pistos, the faithful witness. You know the word witness, right? It's the word marturos from whence we get our word martyr. What is a martyr? Let's linger on that for a minute. Somebody who, what? Typically, yeah, typically we think of somebody who dies for the faith. The, the word does not necessarily mean somebody who dies for the faith, although it certainly can and does very often. The word marturos, or the word martyr, simply means, quite literally, one who is called to testify. Okay? It's a courtroom term. It's one who is called to give a testimony, to speak about what he has or she has seen and heard. Okay? So Jesus Christ here is called the faithful martyr, the marturos pistos, the one who always speaks the truth. Because as you well know, sometimes a witness comes to the testimony stand and does what? Lies his face off. Exactly right. And just because somebody gives a testimony or a witness does not mean necessarily that they are speaking the truth. But when Christ speaks, it is sure that he is always speaking the truth to you and to me in his word. And not only that, but as we think about this word martyr throughout the book of Revelation, and yes, sometimes martyrs do die for the faith, praise God for their courage, you and I are going to be asked throughout this book one question. Are you going to be a faithful martyr too? Or are you going to defect like an apostate who gets weak when tribulation comes? And so therefore is willing to, for the sake of his own hide, blend the truth. Bend the truth. Compromise the truth. You going to do that? Or are you going to stand like a faithful martyr, like your faithful marturos, your marturos pistos, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a real question that we're going to have to face. As we go through Revelation, as we go through life, you're going to be pressed to bend and change. I hope you don't. All right. Now let's skip ahead to verse 7 as we begin to run out of time this morning. I'm aware of the clock. Uh, in verse 7, there is two references to very important prophecies that John now calls our attention to. One of them is Daniel chapter 7. It's a prophecy that's so important. David and I, Pastor David and I, we've actually decided that we're going to spend a special unit of teaching material talking just about Daniel chapter 7. And that we're going to do next Sunday in the evening service. Next Sunday night, we're going to have our last of the fall evening services outside. I've asked Pastor David if he would spend his attention on Daniel chapter 7, which is a critical prophecy. John is going to use Daniel 7 before each major stage of the book of Revelation. So John is obviously thinking about Daniel chapter 7. Uh, but because we're going to devote some special time to that next week, I want to look at the other prophecy here, which is equally important. And it does come from Zechariah chapter 12, our secondary text this morning. If you will, 
Please do this. Please go with me back to Zechariah chapter 12. I want to pick up some language here that becomes radically important in understanding our verse here. Uh, it is a bit of a tough one to find in your Bible. Feel free to use the table of contents if necessary. Zechariah 12, listen to this. Now the good theologians among us are going to notice also Trinitarian motif here. Tell me if you see it. Old Testament has Trinitarian language too. Not just the new. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Question. Can you find the members of the Trinity there? Who, Gospel Fellowship, is the one whom they have pierced? Who is that? It's Christ, obviously. Obviously. John tells us in Revelation 1. By the way, John tells us that in John chapter 19, verse 37, the very scene of the crucifixion of Jesus. As the soldiers look on the, the dead body of Jesus, one of the soldiers lifts up his lance or his spear and he pierces the side of Christ. Do you remember this? In John 19, so that blood and water flow out. And then John quotes this verse and he says, they will look on the one that they've pierced. No question, this is a reference to the Messiah, him being pierced for our good. Do you notice also the Spirit of God in this verse as well? Because God says he is going to pour out what? A Spirit of grace. wonder who that is. And then all we need to do is figure out who I is in verse 10. Probably the Father, right? So the Father says, I'm going to pour out my spirits and I'm going to give you the one who shall be pierced so that the nations may look upon him and mourn. Now in Zechariah chapter 12, this is where John gets a little bit interesting here, is in Zechariah chapter 12, notice all these people that are going to look on the one who is pierced. And, and most of these are going to come from the tribes of Judah, which is David, and Levi. A couple references to Levi here in verse 13. And the Shemites are also Levites here in verse 13. And so uh, Zechariah is primarily talking about the house of Israel, the Jewish people. But, but when we flip back to Revelation 1, our main text today, notice what John says here in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, there's Zechariah 12, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So John takes the Zechariah passage, which focuses on Judah and Levi in the house of Israel in general, and says, oh no, not just, not just the people of Israel. Who's going to look upon the pierced one? Every tribe. They're all going to wail. Wailing, why? Well, either in regrets or wailing for the sake of their sin as they repent and turn to him for the spirit of grace he's going to pour out. So see what John is doing? He's just brilliant, just brilliant everywhere. John is just amazing here in the book of, book of Revelation. There's treasures everywhere in this book. Now, I do want to wrap up, and uh, I want to finish up with verse 5, going back to verses 5 and 6, because we've seen Father, Son, and Spirit now, but that's not the only participants in the war drama that John introduces here. 
You ready for this? There's a twist. Verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in addition to the Trinitarian glory of Father, Son, and Spirit, who else does John the Apocalyptic writer introduce as being major significantly important participants in the war drama? Who is it? It's us, yes. You are called, Gospel Fellowship, not to sit in the stands as spectators. You are called down to the floor of the arena itself to fight and die if necessary for Him. And when you do, as a faithful witness to the faithful witness, then you can be assured that no matter what else happens to you, that these three things are true about you. One, you are loved. The world is going to hate you. The dragon is going to hate you. Let him. Let him hate you. The more the dragon hates you, the more faithful you are. Right? But you are loved and you are freed from your sins. Now, there are people that are slaves that act like they're free, and there are people that are free that act like they're slaves, and there are slaves who know they're slaves, and they're very miserable for sure. But there are those who are free and who are really free. That's you and me. And then finally, you are a kingdom, and there are many forms of government in this world. (laughs) There's monarchies and there's oligarchies and there's totalitarianism and there's anarchies but in the midst of all of these things as they rise and fall there's one sure kingdom that will stand and you are a citizen therein believer amen hi everybody my name is rob and i am a deacon at gospel fellowship pca i'm also the sound engineer the camera guy and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.